Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. Crazy stories are a part of our everyday lives, but how often do you hear a gambling success story? That's right, a success story. Today, I sat down with Kamal Gupta, the author of the book, Play It Right, the remarkable story of a gambler who beat the odds on Wall Street. Yes, that's the whole title. Pick it up on Amazon. But to hear about this is really great from him because it's, a, it's almost an improbable journey through card counting Wall Street and overcoming some crazy odds. Listen into this one. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success magazine podcast. And today I've got Kamal Gupta. Now, you might not know his name, but you will after our conversation. You've got a new book out called Play It Right. And That's right. And uh, it was it was a great fun book. If anything, it's just so different in a great way, by the way, that it had me glued to the story because I'm all about stories. And I want to start off by you telling us the story when you were at Lehman Brothers and you had, what was it, 18 seconds to identify what card was missing from the 52 card deck. Right. That's the opening chapter of the book. And yes. it start, it's simply titled 18 Seconds because um, it's those 18 seconds that changed my life. I mean, it's hard to believe that how such a short period of time could change one's life, but that's what happened to me. So I had, for the two and a half years before that, I had pursued the life of a professional gambler. I was living in San Francisco, playing blackjack in Reno and Las Vegas, and I was very successful at it. And I thought for the rest of my life, I would travel the world playing blackjack. But as it turned out, just, and this story is also in the book, um, just through a random series of events, I ended up sending a resume to Lehman Brothers and a couple of other investment banks. Um, and Lehman Brothers drilled me all day about blackjack because obviously I didn't know the first thing about finance or business or Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So, and they had no interest in computers, which was my background until then before blackjack. But the Lehman bond traders fancied themselves as great blackjack players. So they grilled me on blackjack like there's no tomorrow. Now, blackjack had been my life for two years. So answering their questions was the easiest thing in the world for me. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. lived, ate, and slept blackjack for two years. But to make sure that I wasn't all talk and that I really was a proficient card counter, they asked me, like, how long can you, how long does it take you to count a deck in? And at the time, the peak for me was, or the shortest time I could do it in was 14 seconds. And I said something to that effect, you know, out of a sense of bravado, not realizing that they're going to put me to the test right there and then. <laughs> so, they, so they said, okay, fine. 14 will give you a few seconds of slack. So we'll give you. 18 seconds. And here is, and the guy who ran the group was a poker player. So he had a poker deck with him. So he shuffled mm -hmm. the deck and he hand and, um, and he, he said, well, you'll be able to figure out what card is missing from this deck, right? In under 18 seconds. And I said, yeah, I should be able to with some, <laughs> because the reason I can normally card blackjack players who were suspicious of 
someone being able to pick up the exact card like I was able to do. The only reason I was able to do that is because I used a very advanced counting system, which in which at least half the deck had unique card values. And so there was a 50% probability that they had picked out a card that I could ident identify exactly. And in my case, it happened to be the nine of clubs, you know, which had a unique value in my counting system. So I said, fine. I mean, at this point in time, at the end of an exhausting day of interviews, I'm tired, but I can't really say no, because this is a Wall Street trading floor and any sign of weakness will just, you know, they're not going to stand for it. So they said, okay, they, a small crowd was gathered. Um, they took a deck, shuffled it, took out one card, put it aside and said, here you go. We'll, whenever you're ready, we'll start the clock. And some, the opening line of the book is 18 seconds on the clock, someone shouted, go. Now, I have no idea who was shouting it. I didn't, I was completely out of my element. I mean, this is the first time I've been on a Wall Street trading floor. But I said, all right, you know, this is the only way to get this job. So I'm going to try and do it. Mm -hmm. So I fly through the cards. It, it takes me 16 seconds to reach the end of the deck. So there are two seconds left on the clock um, when I shout, done. And... Obviously, the question they have is, what is the missing card? Mm -hmm. And I said, it's a nine. And with great flourish, the guy who had the missing card flips it over and shows it to the whole world, and it's the nine of clubs. And I breathe a huge sigh of relief while maintain <laughs> maintaining an attitude of, yeah, of course, what else could it be? It's going to be the nine of clubs. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, it was obvious. Right? I mean, it's like, so, and literally right after that, uh, they took me to an office and handed me an envelope, which had an offer letter in it saying, we're pleased to offer you um, a job as a, as a position as a junior trader at Lehman Brothers. And that's how I got my Wall Street job. I mean, I'm, on my first day at Lehman Brothers, I did not know the most basic thing about finance or the bond. In fact, I didn't even know I was working in the bond market when I showed up at Lehman. To me, stocks, bonds, it, were all, it was all the same. Um, I'd never heard the word mortgage-backed security before until I showed up at Lehman. I didn't know the most basic elements of bond math, all that had to be taught to me on day one, which, and of course, I make a fool of myself. I mean, um, that story is also in the book. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, I was a complete outlier in the way I got hired at Lehman Brothers. The average path to a junior job, a junior position on Wall Street is, you know, someone going to an Ivy League school and possibly getting a business degree. And then, mm -hmm. you know, and they, these people who show up on Wall Street have all their lives dreamt of working on Wall Street. That's, that's what they've always wanted. Whereas in my case, I had to actually, a few years before that, I'd taken a vow. I'll never work on Wall Street and I'll never live in New York City. And there was one more, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, I got but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that out for now, unless you want to talk about it. You know, it's <laughs> we'll, like, you know? we'll talk about it in a little bit. Okay. But what made you feel like you didn't want to work at Wall Street? What was, what was, what did Wall Street have that you didn't want to be a part of? Well, in a word, it's greed. Because, and this is uh, uh, a thought that follows throughout my Wall Street career, because in the this is right now we're talking about the late 80s and the very early 90s mm -hmm. and you know from afar um you know living in san francisco or for a while i was living in minneapolis to me wall street was a den of thieves i mean it was you know populated by Ivan bosky michael milken you know gordon gecko fictional but still you know yeah 
And the whole concept of greed is good was something I never subscribed to. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it had something to do with my upbringing, something to do with my innate you know, nature. But even while gambling in Vegas, it was never about greed for me. For me, it was partly a mathematical crusade and partly a moral crusade against the casinos. But yes, you have to win money. Otherwise, you're not beating the house. So yeah. to me, it was about beating the house more than anything else. And yes, you have to win. You have to make money. Otherwise, there is no other proof of you having beaten the house. But to me, money was a side effect of a game played well mm. in Vegas. Mm. And I use it and I fall. So that's why I thought I could not ever run with the greed is good crowd. Like, how could I be a part of that crowd? Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. In the book, you mentioned, and I highlighted it here. Uh, when you're talking about blackjack, I want to know if this is how you still function overall in in the general world, even though you, you said it was about blackjack. You said the game was the perfect combination of three things that I care deeply about, right? Yes. Numbers, numbers, taking calculated risks, and fighting against unfairness. Is that something right. that you still believe in deeply? Completely. I mean, those are the three. I mean, numbers are not a guiding principle. Numbers are just, I had a propensity. I mean, I love math. So, I mean, that was, I had, a, you know, an affinity for numbers and anything to do with numbers. So, the mm-hmm. blackjack obviously is a lot of math involved, right? But the other two things are my core life principles, which is taking calculated gambles and risks and fighting against unfairness. Mm-hmm. And in fact, virtually everything I've done in my life has followed those two principles from the way I got into you know, college one year early to turning down admission to India's top business school and taking a gamble in America, which made the entire story possible. Yeah to giving up on a career in computers and uh, playing blackjack instead to taking a gamble and saying, you know what, I don't know the first thing about finance, but I'm going to go work on Wall Street. Just that whole idea, despite having taken a vow that I would never work on Wall Street, um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, having a really miserable time in this industry and leaving it for some period of time, but then coming back with a newfound resolve that, you know, I have to find a way of taking calculated risk in this industry as well, just like I did in casinos. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. to me, calculated risks, taking calculated risk in financial markets and casinos is, in, is captured in just one facet of the game, which is the odds have to be in your favor. Mm-hmm. If the odds are not in your favor, the longer you play the game, the more get, the greater the probability that you'll lose. So as long as the odds are with you, and obviously counting cards, I believed had turned the odds in my favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me seven years to figure out how to turn the odds into my favor in the financial in financial markets. But once I had hit upon that message, for the next 20 years while managing money for the largest hedge funds in the world, I never deviated from it for even a single moment. For like 20 years, that's a very long time to follow the exact same strategy day after day, you know, week after week, month after month. So taking calculated risks means um, turning the odds in my favor and staying with the method. Now, fighting against unfairness, like virtually everything in my life has been defined by that, from when I was in high school to when I was in college to battling the casinos because I thought it was incredibly unfair that casinos threw, sometimes threw and sometimes even beat up card counters. So essentially what they're saying is if you have the audacity to use your brain while playing the game, we'll not only throw you out, we might even get you arrested or have you beaten. 
which is insane. I mean, I, it's a, what can be more unfair than that? I mean, and this unfairness had been enabled by the Nevada court system, which has somehow given some something called the innkeeper's law right to all these massive casinos and hotels that they can kick anyone out of their establishment for any reason they see fit. Did you ever get so, kicked out of a casino? I got kicked out four times. Four times. Yeah. Were any of so, those... Did, it, did anybody kick your ass on any of those? No, there was only one scenario, <laughs> one situation where I was afraid that my ass might get kicked because, <laughs> because there was this one casino in Reno and I sort of, I, the, the name is there in the book. I think they're yeah, defunct yeah. now. It was, probably it was 1992. This casino, they, the pit bosses and the dealers, everyone in that establishment thought this wild and crazy Indian was their friend. I was not a computer scientist in the casino. I was a wild and crazy gambling maniac of a plastics import-export you know, merchant. Mm-hmm. So I would wear flashy clothes and act like a maniac and you know, just anything to disguise my play. Got it. And I, when I used to travel around the world, I would send the pit bosses you know, postcards from my various destinations, Zurich or Singapore or New Delhi. So these guys had come to believe I was their buddy. And it took them over a year to figure out that I was nothing better than a dirty card counter. And they were furious. <laughs> they were like, I mean, it's like, like a betrayal, right? They got stabbed in the back by a friend. I mean, it's how mm-hmm. they, so I can understand how they felt, but to me, it was a war. It's all fair game. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, you kick card counters out and which is what you're going to do to me now. Um, mm-hmm. And so I have to do, you know, undertake any form of deception that I can. So they came with, two very, very big guards and individuals. And, and they basically said, you know, get out sort of a thing. And I, I tried to like sweet talk them like I had done for the year before, but they were just, it was clear to me if I didn't leave that my ass was getting kicked. That was the only scenario. In other places, yeah, they were angry. Sometimes they were even polite. They simply said, you're too good. We can't afford to let you play out. All right. So so well, that, that at least wasn't too bad, right? They it like, wasn't yeah. too bad. No, I never got beaten up or arrested, thankfully. But the thing is, my idol, the guy whose book um, turned me on to card counting and whose system I used, the mm-hmm. Ken Ooston, and his book is Million Dollar Blackjack, he was arrested and beaten several times yes. for counting cards. So, and that sort of made me angry. Like, why did they do this to him? All he's doing is he's using his brain to play the game according to the rules the casinos have set for themselves. For mm-hmm. every player. So, so just the fact that he can turn the odds in his favor. And by the way, very few card counters can. Like very few. But the problem is the casinos are not willing to tolerate even one of those card counters. I mean, as I saw for myself on numerous mm-hmm. occasions. So I had to take all sorts of evasive measures to not get kicked out. You know, from alternate identities to fake names to stealing my own chips to make it appear I was losing more or winning less. I mean, anything. Oh, wow. So I, I did, I mean, um, it was, I mean, it, it was, in some ways, it wasn't fun trying to figure out creative ways to keep playing. But then mm-hmm. I decided to make a cat and mouse game out of it. Because there is, first, there is a game of blackjack, right? Which is just math, odds and probabilities. But then there's another game on top of that, which is how to not get kicked out of the casino. <laughs> that's so, a game. I, I mean, love how that's, that's a game. That's a game. I mean, it's a game, right? You, how do you fool the casinos into thinking, A, either you're not counting cards, or B, if you are, you're such a loser at it that you're going to lose money and they should let you play. Yeah. So either of those are fine. And the, the point is that the point is just 
they have to let you keep playing the game because to me, it has always been about the game, which is why the title of the book is Played Right. Because if there is no game, what are you going to play? Right or wrong? There's nothing to play. Well, as I was reading this, I was thinking, man, this has got to be made into a movie. So I don't know. I don't know if you've tried to throw that out there to anybody, but that, this will make a fun um, movie. I think, I think uh, my agent is, uh, I mean, she feels it? the same way. I yeah. think he is. And, and then I have a publisher in India and they've uh, also said, and I have a North American publisher and another publisher in India. And the book so, comes out in. So that means that it's a race between Bollywood and Hollywood to see who's <laughs> going to do it first. <laughs> I have a feeling if anybody is going to have interest, it'll probably be Bollywood first, because I think um, I was surprised by the amount of interest the book generated in India, because it's sort of an aspirational story of yeah. what someone can do when obviously I grew up, I spent the first 22 years of my life in India. Uh, and I could never have imagined when I came to the U.S. because U.S. was this land of possibility for me, which is why I came here. And at least in my case, America's reputation has turned out to be richly deserved. I mean, where else can somebody come to study computer science, become a professional gambler, end up on Wall Street, and then write a book about it? And like you said, maybe a movie. Now, now if it goes into Bollywood, I want to know, is Shah Rukh Khan going to play the, the lead here as, as Kamal Gupta? I don't know. Well, it depends. If, if it, Shah Rukh doesn't have a mustache, you know. So it's like, oh, that's so, so good, man. I right. think it's an, it's an entertaining story. I mean, I think it would yeah. be a movie or a series, but we'll see. I think just getting this far has been well worth it for me. Let's talk about that. And I don't know if you've been asked this, because I, as I was reading this, I kept on thinking... There, there's there's something else here, and I wanted you to dig deeper on this because you left you left India to go into deeper into computer science. And then from computer science, you switch you switch over to blackjack, right? And then you immediately, pretty immediately, switch over to Wall Street. Yes. But I didn't I didn't see I didn't see you talk about diving deeper into what allowed you to be able to focus so deeply on each one of these that allowed you to succeed at the highest level? And because what, what is that? What type of focus I, does that require? I think I'm just an addict. I mean, it's like when I decide to do something, I, I cannot be swayed from my objective. And like when I played blackjack, um, I literally, like it was a 24 seven obsession with me. My friends around me in San Francisco got sick and tired of me because no matter what I was doing, it was always about blackjack. And I read everything I could. I bought literally every book I could find on the topic. Um, and this is before the era of the internet. So, I mean, you had to read books back then. Um, and I practiced easily six hours a day, every day at home. Then wow. when, I got, when I got to Wall Street, um, it took me a year or two to even get my bearings, you know, in this business. And by then I realized I just hated it and I didn't want any part of this industry. And I left for three and a half months thinking that I'm not even sure I'm going to come back to this business. Mm -hmm. and, and this was a turning point in the book as well, because I sort of felt like Wall Street had crushed me. I mean, and it's it broken me and, and turned me into something that I despised, a quitter. And mm -hmm. I said, well, do, am I going to let Wall Street do this to me or will I go back and fight once more? Well, Spoiler alert, I do go back and fight once more. Yeah. And then I decided in the time that I had off, which also coincidentally happened to be the time when I got married. And that was my excuse for taking three and a half months off. 
from Lehman. Um, I decided that I'm going to go back and I'm going to find a method for beating the financial markets. Mm-hmm. Either that or I will just leave the industry. And it takes me five more years to figure it out. Uh, and then I moved to the hedge fund world and managed money for the next 20 years, you know, creating an extraordinary track record of managing money and all that. But it, the, to answer your question, I was obsessed with Blackjack and I was obsessed with the mortgage market. And I literally stayed up all night twiddling my thumbs, thinking about the latest piece of the puzzle that was the mortgage market. I mean, unlike Blackjack, where you can pick up books, and read yeah. how to count cards. In financial markets, there are no books to read, no papers to you know get a method from. I had to develop it from scratch all by myself. And that's why it took me seven years, which in hindsight sounds insane that I spent that long to figure out how to manage money. But then you know there is no alternative to time in financial markets. You, you have to go through various cycles to understand what can happen and what could possibly go wrong. Um, so before the 08 crisis, I had seen the 1998 crisis. And so I had seen what could happen. And that sort of, you know, you know reinforced view that the, the method has to be theoretically viable and mathematically provable, just like counting cards was. So I, you know, I, I had, I, to answer the question, it's basically an addiction and an obsession with blackjack and then mortgages. Um, and then eventually with the writing of a book. I mean, I spent 12 plus hours a day working on the book. I mean, I left my job. I mean, I'd worked in the business for almost 27 years at that stage. Mm-hmm. But then I left um, the financial industry to work on the book. And I, I mean, the odds of a complete unknown who has never written even a single page article before, putting a memoir together, and let alone having it be published, were easily a thousand to one, if not more. But you know, I stayed with it because, um, and I had some incredible help along the way. And, you know, as a result, here we are. All right. So with that, because I, I do see that you just, you dive into things and you just, yes. like, there's, there's nothing else. I'm just going to go all else. in. What, because most of the listeners that we have here are entrepreneurs, business owners, solopreneurs, and they're always looking to, to see how they can grow businesses, how they can go deeper into whatever else they want to grow. What, what suggestion can you give along those lines and say, hey, this, this is, this is what will allow you to be able to grow this thing that you want to grow. What, what would that be? Because you did it so well, multiple times. Well, the thing for me, and I think this probably should work for others as well, but has certainly worked for me is finding my niche, like to figure out in, in blackjack, it wasn't so difficult. In the, in the financial market world, it was much harder to find out exactly what part of the financial markets can I play in and actually mathematically beat it. And to find that niche was probably the hardest. So first I have to find exactly what the game is that I'm going to play. And then I have to figure out the method because in mm. on Wall Street, there's literally a million games you can play, right? You can, you can choose the ins- different instruments. You can choose how to trade them. And so, I mean, I have, in one of the chapters in the book, I, I lay out the four questions that I need to answer before I could manage money. Um, and I think anyone who's, and, and I, I've been in, in 
entrepreneur all my life because Blackjack was my own business. And even though I worked for large hedge funds, I was my own little silo, which had nothing to do with the rest of the firm. You know, and I just did my own thing. And thankfully, my performance was good enough that everybody left me alone. So, yes, I managed money for large hedge funds. But as far as I was concerned, I was doing it solo, you know, with the help of, you know, um, another person. Um, so in that sense, I'm running a small business of my own. And the way it worked for me is to find the narrow slice where I could do the job better than anyone else could do it. So I think if I were to run, open a shop or a restaurant or so hypothetically, I've often fantasized about running a restaurant. And there's a brief anecdote in the book about this when I work as a waiter for a few, for a few, few weeks. Um, but if I opened a restaurant, I would serve a handful of dishes, which I know that I can make better than anybody else in the neighborhood or in the area. So that people would have to come for those rather than being everything to everyone. I would try to narrow my focus to what I can do really, really well, and then keep perfecting that craft. And once that craft has been as perfect as it could be made, then you just keep repeating it. There's a book called Rich and Repeat Until Rich, which is about actually a a blackjack player as well, which captures the life of a blackjack player quite well, in my opinion. Uh, and then, so once, so you find your niche, mm-hmm. fine tune your method, and then repeat until rich. That, dude, that's pretty solid advice right there because we can apply that to every, not and only business, you can. but social media. Yeah. You can apply it to anything. And as long as you have a method, you know, to overcome the odds that, you know, or the obstacles that are standing in your way. Mm-hmm. All right. So, what does, what is, cal- when I say calculated risk, what is that? What does that do to your mind? Like what, what, is, what goes through your head? What does calculated risk look like? So you can either stay away from it or jump into it. That's a great question because calculated risk in casinos and in financial markets means one thing, but in different areas of life, it can mean something completely different. Mm-hmm. So the simpler answer is in casinos and, and on wall street. It simply yeah. means that the odds have to be with you because otherwise you cannot play the game for any length of time. So if the odds are with you, you can keep playing over and over and, if you re- and basically repeat until rich because every, every iteration of the hand of the game, you know, the, you're closer and closer to the true odds being realized, which are in your favor, which is why casinos have, you know, these large buildings because the odds are in their favor and the longer people gamble, the more money they'll make and more guaranteed they are of making money. Now, so so in, in Wall Street and casinos, it's a question of having, making sure that the odds are in your favor. In different aspects of, of life, for instance, in my case, it was this whole concept of writing a book where the odds were distinctly against me, right? Thousand to one are not good odds by any stretch of imagination. Yeah. However, even if the odds are against you, now thousand to one is crazy, but let's say the odds are hundred to one against you in any venture. But if the payoff is 200 to one, well, then you're well advised to take that risk, mm-hmm. right? So the it's not just that the odds have to be in your favor. The risk reward has to be in your favor. So if you have a game, which you can play over and over again, where the odds are one in a hundred, but the payoff is 200 times, well, you should just keep playing it forever and you'll win because the expected value is in your favor. So in terms of writing a book, obviously I didn't do it for the money. I didn't play blackjack for the money. I, I, you know, 
even though I had to win money to prove that I was playing the game well. And same is true for Wall Street. I mean, I didn't. I definitely did not write this book, you know, to make money. I wrote it because I had a story to tell. I've been a storyteller all my life, and I figured, you know, this is a way to share a story with the world. And even though the odds were against it, um, like hugely against it, I felt like if I could pull it off, it would be life changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if I, you know, and and I. By now, I'm in like mid fifties, and I have the time to devote to this venture, and 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 I really felt like it would be it's akin to leaving something behind, right? You're, and it could, you know, a book that is published is for posterity. It's never going anywhere. That's I mean, true. and there is a point zero one zero point zero zero one percent probability that the book is wildly successful, but guess what? It's a very low probability. But again, the payoff is huge. Like not necessarily monetarily, but just from a sense of satisfaction. Not every payoff has to be financial. I mean, I've, de- I've derived a great sense of satisfaction from just being able to, I mean, in this process, I've learned how to write. I've learned how books actually get produced, which is something I had no idea about. I mean, I, when I walked into a casino and encountered blackjack, I didn't know anything about it, but then I figured it all out. When I came to Wall Street, I didn't know the first thing about finance, but then it took me a while, but I figured it out. I walked into the publishing world like a complete idiot, not knowing anything, thinking I could just write a book and get published. And now that I see the effort it takes to actually go from writing the first word on a piece of paper or on a computer to holding a hardcover in your hand, like I was able to do last week, it's an incredibly tough road. And, you know, it was a really foolish pursuit, but, you know, it worked out because I stayed with it despite, um, you know, this story is not in the book, but there were tremendous setbacks along the way. I mean, I was signed by a very prominent literary agent right off the bat on the basis of my chapter one, 18 seconds. But then, you know, she tried to bully me into writing a book I didn't want to write. And, you know, I, one of my friends said that you'll be the first unpublished author in the history of publishing to fire their agent but I did that and then again I'm and it was sort of like a repeat of my time on Wall Street where I didn't know if I wanted to continue in the publishing world as well because I was just so disillusioned with the whole process of finding an agent you know writing a book proposal and you know finding a publisher and then walking away from it all but then I decided to go back with again with a newfound sense of resolve and found the perfect agent. He secured book deals in India and in North America. And now we'll see how the book is received. But for me, you know, just having come this far is is enough. Because I never thought I would make it, you know. All right. Question about the process. Do you find that that just, and this is a personal question for you, and only because I've noticed this in other people that we interview. Do you find that any new endeavor, you go all in and then you take a step back and then you recommit to it? Is that something that you've noticed over the years? Oh, 100%. Because, I mean, in all three of my latest ventures over the last three decades, in Blackjack, the first time I went to the casinos, first few times, in fact. I got my ass kicked because the game at home is very different from the game in the casino, the distractions and the, you know, playing with fake chips as opposed to real money. It's a very different pressure. 
And I was not ready for it. And it was very difficult. And I almost quit blackjack, you know, after my first few trips to the casinos. Same thing with Wall Street. Um, I not only did almost quit it, I left the business for three and a half months, not knowing if I was going to come back, but I do. And same thing in the publishing world. When I got rid of my first agent, um, I really did not know if I wanted to continue. And I took, again, a few months off from the, the whole idea of getting, writing a book and getting it published before recommitting myself to the process and saying, you know what, I'm going to try and still do this. What changes so, between you taking the time off and so that you can re-dive into it? Because that's a lesson we can all we can all dive deeper into and learn from. I think in in every case, I think it gave me perspective. Like, you know, when you're in the trenches all day long, whether it's financial markets or trying to like write chapter after chapter, your focus is extremely narrow, right? Like just what's the next words? What's the next sentence? And 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 writing is, you know, I have discovered is a very precise art. I mean, it sounds like a contradiction in terms, precise art. But in my, you know, mind, it's sort of almost like math. In the difference in the right word and almost the right word is astronomical. So um, in that sense, I think stepping away from the narrow world that you're inhabiting, whether it's the day-to-day trading, you know, problems that you that I'm facing or figuring out what the next chapter is, the next stories that I'm going to write and stepping, taking a step back and saying, do I even want to do this? Mm-hmm. Is the whole venture worth it? And the whole, and the answer, if the answer is not, it is worth it, then there's no point in continuing. And there have been plenty of ventures where the answer has been for me. It's not worth it. <laughs> so like, for, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go no ahead. for instance, like I, when I lived in Minneapolis and I was, I was fed up with the computer business very early on. So I wanted to open a restaurant of my own. And then I go work in a restaurant for a few weeks, a few months, I think, as a waiter. And I see up close how difficult that business is. And I, you know, I didn't think I had it in me, just the the physical and the mental. I mean, I don't have a problem with mental stress. I mean, I can handle it. But just like I didn't see it as a fulfilling way of living my life you know up, i mean from a distance running a restaurant sounds very glamorous mm-hmm. but seeing it up and up close and personal i did not like it and i did realize i didn't want to continue and i never went back to it interesting man. i i love this so i love this conversation because it's it's a deep part of the whole book because i'm i'm thinking through the whole thing there's got to be sections in the book and, and you bring them up but sections that you don't bring up when you're like, do I really want to continue this in between, in between, right? And, oh, and- I'll, I'll, I'll give you the most stark example of that. That's in the book. And I mean, spoiler alert, I've been married for the last 27 years. But on the day of my wedding, um, as we, you know, after the church and, you know, we had a wedding in India and a wedding in, in, in America, but after the church wedding, you know, as the first dance begins and everyone's eyes are on me and, and my wife, I have the one and only panic attack of my life where I don't know if I want to do this. And I don't even know what this means. Is, it, is this just the first dance or is it the idea of getting married? 
And I sort of was struggling with a lot of issues at that time in terms of my arthritis and my uncertainty in terms of my career prospects and having to like, you know, I didn't want to go back to blackjack and I couldn't see going back to the computer industry and I hated Wall Street. So what am I going to do in the future? Uh, how will I, you know, not only support myself, but a family. I mean, it's, uh, and, you know, I've suffered from arthritis from the age of 15, which uh, also, you know, came crashing down on me in that moment saying like, why am, you know, maybe I shouldn't even get married. And, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, I know how difficult I made it for my wife in those two or three minutes, you know, and, and we managed to make it through that dance without anyone finding out. Uh, but that was a case of my not knowing, you know, like I'm sitting here having just gotten married in a church, having forgotten who I was and what I was doing there and who is this person in my arms that I'm dancing with. It's like sounds insane in hindsight, yeah. but I can't deny the fact that that's how I felt at the moment. And, uh, and she knew that right. I was completely lost. So. so this is something that, that we can all relate with just in general for just being human, right? Dealing with the unknown is, is such a challenge for so many people. And we saw it through COVID. We see it through every, every either national, localized or world challenge. How is it that you deal with the unknown now? It's tough. That is really tough. So I, I think the way I have dealt with unknown in... Um, You'll find the answer somewhat surprising. I believe the key to happiness, among other things, is keeping life simple. So the way I deal with unknowns in life is really shrinking my universe, not in terms of, you know, people or anything like that, but only focusing on a limited set of activities at any point in time. Like I don't spread myself too thin. Um, I mean, I don't, I I stay focused on what it is that I'm trying to accomplish and to the best of my ability, just ignore what's going on. I mean, like if I'm writing a book, I mean, and there is a pandemic raging in the world, I mean, um, you know, I'll do the best I can to insulate myself from it, but it will not distract me from, you know, writing the book or if I'm managing money for a hedge fund and the entire financial universe blows up in 07 or 08, mm-hmm. it's still not going to prevent me from following the path that I've chosen. So, I mean, I think you just have to be determined. And I think if you simplify, I mean, simplifying life um, makes it much easier to deal with uncertainty in your world because you have fewer uncertainties to deal with. That's so well said. <laughs> that was so yeah, well said. Like, you know, know what? That's like a mathematician answering the question, right? <laughs> that was good. That was good. Thank you. That that was good, man. I, I like that answer. So let's talk about, I, I couldn't wait to talk to you because it's just the timing. And, and I love it because now we're, we're hearing in the media, we're hearing in the news, it's 08 all over again, right? That's what's in the media. And so I wanted to interview you Partially because of that, I'm like, well, you went through the whole 08 thing and you were right in the middle of it. Yes. Right. So first, tell me about your experience in 08 in the world you were in. And then let's transition to how that's similar to now. Well, my private little 08 happened a few years earlier in 04, 05, when I was working for a large Swiss bank. 
And I realized, and at that time, my focus was limited to this one corporation. And, and I, I became convinced, and this story is in the book in some detail, how I become convinced that the largest of Swiss banks, 100 and change billion market capitalization is nothing but a ticking time bomb. And this happens in fall of 2004, well before the crisis hits. To the, and, and I'd been at the bank for almost five years, like mm-hmm. very happily managing money. And yet I got up and bolted from the firm because I knew it was going to blow up and I didn't want to be around the Titanic when it sank. Wow. So, yeah, that's one of your chapters. That's right. right. So I, I, I leave because of two words or two phrases, CDOs and subprime mortgages. And even though I'm, I've been involved in the mortgage market, I was only involved in more conservative mortgages, which are backed by the U.S. government. So I didn't have the exposure that subprime mortgages entail. And, but I was terrified of both of these businesses. And at the time, I thought the problem was confined to one Swiss bank. I had no idea that it was pervasive in the entire financial industry. So as early as 04, I was convinced that one large bank was going to blow up on CDOs and subprimes. I could never have imagined that every financial institution was going to do so. But it takes me a couple more years before I figure out that everybody is on this boat and that the health of the entire financial system hinges upon this tenuous belief that housing prices in America will go up forever. And nothing goes up forever just because it has always, almost always gone up in the past. And I'm not a believer in historical analysis. Doesn't mean that it will continue in the future. And, but somehow everyone in the financial universe had bought into this, this fantasy that housing prices can't fall from the rating agencies to the originators, to homeowners, to investment yep. banks, to money managers, everyone. And um, so when 2008 hits, and despite, I mean, um, Lehman Brothers was, which was my first job, was also my, you know, prime broker where all my bonds were held. And um, it was a very harrowing time, you know, to go through it. And, and luckily, I came out of it because I worked for a British hedge fund and Lehman Brothers Europe, but for some reason not filed for Chapter 11. And I don't know how, but I was able to get out of my exposure. You know, Lehman was able to price me out. It cost me a lot of money. It caused me to have my first losing month after 103 months. But that's fine. I mean, um, 103 months was a very long streak to have without having a losing month. And um, so I went through that in 2008. And I saw firsthand how virtually every financial institution imploded. And, and I came through it despite having my first losing month with flying colors with returns of something like an average return of around 16% in 2007 and 2008. Um, Whoa. So, I mean, it's, it's unheard of that, you know, and that's a testament to more than anything to my strategy and the, the method that I spent seven years, you know, trying to figure out. And I had designed it to be independent of macro events, like anything, any kind of global financial meltdown, I should not be affected by. And this was the perfect I mean, I'd seen it in the 98, but 2008 was a whole different kind of crucible. Yeah. You know, and the thing is you now going further to where we are today, I think the risks are even greater today than they were back in 08. Um, and I believe, you know, this whole concept of Wall Street getting bailed out in 07, in 08, 
unfortunately, I think it will happen again because the large financial institutions are much bigger today than they were in 08. Much bigger. I think J.B. Morgan's balance sheet might be twice as much, if not bigger. And so, and to me, balance sheet is euphemism for risk. So the more, the larger the number of assets, you, amount of assets you have on your books, the more risk you're carrying. And um, so, I mean, if, if these institutions were bail were bailout worthy back in 08, how can they not be so now? That's true. All right. So that's on the Wall Street side. What about, and I don't know if you know enough of this to answer the question, but what about the housing market? Because in 07, 08, the housing market just completely obliterated everything. Is that something that you're looking at right now as well? Or what, how does that look? So housing market has done extremely well during the pandemic as people leave, you know, large cities and move to suburbia and, and, and there's need for more space and more separation, if nothing else. Um, I don't expect a housing crash, if that's what you're asking me. However, I do think the best days of housing locally are behind us and the gains if at all going forward will be far smaller than what they have been in the last two, three years. And there is a chance that housing has already reached its peak. And so I'm not worried about a housing crash or a financial crisis as a result of the housing crash. Because back in 08, literally everything was based off of the housing market from CDOs to subprime mortgages to you know just the, um, the way the lending business worked back then. Right now, um, yes, housing is, 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 has done well, but it hasn't done as well as it had done in the six years leading up to the crisis. To give you an idea, from 94 to 2000, in that six-year mm-hmm. period, housing and, and uh, income, median household income, both mm-hmm. grew 30%, 30% in those six-year period, from 94 to 2000. In 2000, when risk-taking on Wall Street took off, in the next six mm-hmm. years, 2000 to 2006, which is just before the crisis, housing goes up 80%, whereas wow. income, only, income only goes up 15%. Whoa. So income, inco- income goes from 30% to 15%, but housing goes from 30 to 80% gains. So the, the huge bifurcation between income and housing, that's what caused the crisis. I mean, that's what caused the bubble. And, you know, because people couldn't afford the homes and, you know, and then you're like making the system more and more unbalanced. That dichotomy is less severe today because incomes are actually going up these days. And which is why, you know, people are freaking out that, you know, wages are going up. I mean, nobody complains when you have asset inflation in stocks and bonds, but heaven forbid the common man has more money in his pocket. We must do something to slow the economy down. Crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, so so I, I'm not that I think the system is still extremely risky, but I'm not worried from a housing crash standpoint. Nice man. See, that's that's the question I was waiting to ask you because I'm reading your book. I'm like, this guy's I mean, great book, amazing story. And I'm thinking that you're uh you're just somebody that I want to talk to in regards to just the finances because you were in it, and more importantly. You believe in that you want to be there to change the way things work because you believe in that unfairness and you want to make a difference. Right. And I think, but even there, I have done it in a very narrow sense, in the sense that the way I've combated unfairness, this is only peripherally mentioned in the book. And it, 
if there is a second book, it will be on this topic. Um, is I've done that by helping countless individuals negotiate against large corporations. Because to me, just like casinos take advantage of their gamblers, um, large corporations take advantage of individuals. And the balance of power over the last 25 years has dramatically tilted away from individuals in favor of large corporations. And merger and acquisitions are a big part of it and diminished competition has a lot to do with it. Um, workers have far fewer rights today than they did you know, 25 years ago. And the way I combat the problem is, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think this word, ex this phrase exists in, you know, in the world, but I'm a shadow negotiator. I negotiate from behind the scenes and I've done so for, you know, scores of individuals. And I have, you know, lots of stories about negotiating, which are not in play right, but with luck could be in book too. So, I mean, I, I combat the unfairness of the balance of power between corporations and individuals by helping literally any individual, somebody I may, may not even have ever met before, um, negotiate against any corporation. It doesn't matter which corporation, doesn't matter which industry. Mm -hmm. um, and again, there also I have a method that I follow in terms of how I go about negotiating. And, um, and I will not deviate from that method, just like I didn't deviate from counting cards in Blackjack or the system I laid out for myself in financial markets. So that's how I, I try. I mean, it's a very small way of making a difference, but um, I think this is something like we were talking about finding your own niche. This is mm -hmm. something I can do better than most people. So I'm going to just use my negotiating skill to help out as many people as I can. Dude, I love that. You should have your own yeah. YouTube channel where you're just talking <laughs> about this all day. I'm not joking. I'm like, this is good. You have you have such great info in such a niche area that you would gather a great following pretty quickly once people start sharing your stuff. So, what are you what are you working on next? Because I, I see different phases in your life. Are you in the book phase? Are you in like the that media world? Have you gone deeper into it? What does that look like? Um. I think I'm in the book phase. And I think like when I think back of, you know, whether it's counting cards or wall street and then eventually the publishing world, mm -hmm. I think I hate to say this, but I don't think my brain is capable of doing much more at this stage of my life, other than writing stories on paper or telling stories verbally. I so I think the only skill that I have left that I can use is writing or telling stories. I don't think my brain is sharp enough, you know, to go back to blackjack, certainly not. And maybe not even to Wall Street. I mean, uh, I came to Wall Street almost 30 years ago. I mean, as a result, I'm 30 years older. And so I'm going to be less um, acute mathematically, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so, but the thing is this, this skill of writing that I learned over, over the last four years, this is a skill that I don't think will ever go away. Now I know mm -hmm. how to the written page and it took a lot of effort to get there, but now, so I might as well use this skill because I have one or two other books that I can write and I'm halfway into book two already, but we'll see if it ever gets published. Dude. Well, I mean, do I smell a newsletter coming out anytime soon? 
<laughs> I, you know, I, I don't think so because the problem with the newsletter is it commits you to a schedule. And I think the greatest thing about not working for me is that whenever I wake up in the morning, I can do exactly what I want whenever I want to do it. I'm not driven by anybody else's clock. And the thing is, if I, if I put a newsletter in my schedule, then I would have sort of, I think, straightjacketed myself into a schedule, to following yeah. a schedule. And I think not having a day-to-day schedule, I think, is the ultimate freedom. Like, I can wake up and do literally anything I want to. That's true, man. That's very true. I like that. So, so what are you working on? What are you working on right now? You're in the middle of a third possible book. No, I'm in the middle of a second book. I think I'm about halfway into the, that book. Okay. And, you know, my agent and in, in discussions, what to do and how to proceed forward. Because um, Plate Right, since I had never been published before, had to be completed, like a first draft from start to finish, before anybody would buy the book any publisher would commit to publishing it because they wanted to see they can actually finish a book. Like, yeah. you know, um, and that the story, you know, follows through from beginning to end in a consistent and a logical fashion. True. But now that a book has been written, I, I think I might get a little more credit from publishers about, okay, if he shows us 100 pages, we know he can write the other 150. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I think... Um, I'm waiting to see how Playwright does and if it finds an audience or not. Hopefully it will. Um, I think I think it's, well, obviously everyone thinks they've written a great book, but at least I don't know if it's a great book or not, but I know it's the best book I could have produced. I'm not capable of producing a better book than this it was when it comes to this story. So, so now whatever happens is not in my hands, you know. The control, control shifts to the readers. I'm pushing for uh, a movie and then we can have uh, <laughs> Brad Pitt play, play Kamal Gupta in the United States. <laughs> uh, oh, it's so good, man. Well, look, I loved, loved the book. It's so fun. And I learned, I learned some things and I'm glad you answered all my questions. So thank you so much for being on. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you very much. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.